Well, this is our last uh, sermon in the book of Mark, which is a series that we started back in April. We've finally made it. My notes say pause for laughter and applause, but uh, we... You're like me, I don't clap much in church, so there you go. Some of you are thinking, especially, especially if you haven't been with us that long, how could this be the last sermon? Doesn't this church believe in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus? Well, if you're joining us for the first time today or you're, or you're relatively new, I assure you, we do believe in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We started our study in Mark during Holy Week, if you remember. So the first stories we looked at in Mark's gospel uh, were coming from uh, Mark 15 and 16, where we read of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It is a bit of a sour note to end our study on Peter's denial, though. And he broke down and wept. Okay, go in peace. (laughs) But actually, this provides us an opportunity to learn an important lesson And that is, whatever passage we encounter in Scripture, no matter how difficult or dark, whether it's the bloody stories found in the book of Judges or the laments of the prophets, we must see them in view of the truth of the, excuse me, we must see them in view of the truth of the crucifixion and in the light of the resurrection. So although our passage ends with Peter breaking down and weeping in the night, we know that the morning of Jesus' resurrection, joy and restoration awaits him. The end of the passage is just the beginning of the story for Peter and for the other disciples. So whatever you're reading in your Bible, as Christians, we remember that what illuminates the page is the light of the resurrection. Okay, that's sermon number one. That's done. We're now going to go on to sermon number two. Fortunately, this one's a little longer than the first one. But don't worry, there are only two sermons today. So let's now look at Mark 14 together. I ask you to have your Bibles open to page 851, 852, where this passage is found as we look at these verses, because we're going to be looking at the rest of the chapter. These scenes in the chapter taken together pose a sharp question to us this morning, and that is, what is your life most devoted to? What is your life geared to? I suspect that many in this room have already answered, my life is devoted to Jesus. Maybe others of you don't have a ready answer right at hand. But no matter how you answer, the longer you live, the clearer it will be what you're really dedicating your life to. Sometimes it's very clear, and other times it's not so clear. Sometimes others have better insight into what we're really dedicating our lives to. But let's be clear about one thing this morning, and that is all of us are living towards something for better or for worse. The question is not for us as humans, should you devote your life to something? The question is, what is your life actually devoted to? So last week, we encountered a woman interrupt a dinner party, and she anoints Jesus with some of the most expensive perfume available on the market. One scholar suggests that the cost of the perfume could have fed uh, 7,000 meals, uh, could have provided 7,000 meals for the poor. But this woman pays no heed to the cost. The woman spares nothing, not a cent, not even her dignity. 
Not even the scorn of the onlookers will stop her. She uses the whole bottle to anoint Jesus with worship and adoration. There is no question where this woman's devotion lies. It's to Jesus. All to Jesus she surrenders. And what a contrast this week with the disciples. You see, one by one, they peel away from Jesus until it is just Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin and the chief priests facing charges of blasphemy. The disciples surrendered all, but not to Jesus in our passage. Now, these events before Jesus' crucifixion, we have three individuals that come to the foreground. Judas, Peter, and Jesus. And the severe trials and temptations they undergo reveal what they are really devoted to. And the same is true that when we undergo physical or spiritual or circumstantial trials, they often strip away things from us in life and in the process reveal what our true devotion is really all about. It's true for us, and it's also true for Judas, Peter, and Jesus in this passage. So please note with me first the devotion of Judas exposed. The woman gave up wealth, went for broke for Jesus, and in verse 10, immediately after her story, story, notice, Judas fills his pockets with money to betray Jesus. She gave it all for Jesus, and and Judas gave up Jesus to get all the money he wanted. Psalm 62, verse 10, we read earlier, says this, Put no trust in extortion. If riches increase, set not not your heart on them. Well, that is exactly what Judas does in this passage. Plain and simple, Judas gives up Jesus for money. Greed has squeezed out every penny of godliness, whatever godliness was left in Judas' life. Unfortunately, the way that Judas is portrayed in movies and in art makes him look usually unusually sinister. He's like a crazed man that is demon-possessed, perfect for a Halloween movie. But I think that those depictions make Judas unrelatable to ordinary people like ourselves. We don't want to believe that we are the kind of people that are motivated by greed, yet alone greed that would end in the betrayal of Jesus. But greed is not like a ditch. You can't just walk around it if you just watch where you are going. Greed thrives behind the invisible line of just enough. It's very easy to go from I need to I want seamlessly. Greed sucks you in like a sinkhole instantly. A nod to just a little bit more money a bigger house, a nicer vacation, more overtime, and it is possible we would have fallen headfirst into greed's grip without even realizing it. So how can we tell when our lives are caught up in the current of greed? Theologian Graham Tomlin, bishop in England, says this, legitimate self-interest provides for myself and for those who depend on me. 
A healthy ambition achieves great things, but greed always consumes. It is never satisfied, and it is always hungry for more. A person who is given into greed is always unhappy, and it always brings destruction to the person and to others. And that's exactly what comes of Judas here. We may not always be aware, we may not always be aware of when we're falling into greed. But when you spend enough time with Jesus, there's going to be a warning sign coming your way. Maybe a moment of conviction, maybe a timely insight from Scripture, a word from our friend. And that's exactly what Judas gets. Because when we learn that Judas falls into the peril of greed, we shortly then get, uh, get Jesus' prediction at the Last Supper in verse 18. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now at present at the Last Supper, we often just think it was the twelve disciples, but based on what Jesus then says afterwards, we know that there were other people in the room perhaps women followers of Jesus or servants. That is why Jesus gets even more specific. In verse 21, he says, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So Judas is provided the opportunity to pull back from his plan. It is not too late. And then Jesus goes on to warn Judas that whatever reward he would get for betraying Jesus it certainly couldn't compare to the cost. It isn't worth the punishment. He says, woe to the man, in verse 21, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In other words, how terrible it will be for the one who betrays the one that God has appointed to be the ruler in his kingdom the coming judge, the savior of the world. It would be better for him not to be born. What a warning Jesus gives to Judas. There's still time for him. But unfortunately, he wastes the opportunity for repentance and he hops on the road to perdition, never looking back. And with that, we now enter into the realm of mystery. Because as Jesus said, it was written in the Scriptures that this betrayal would come for the Son of Man. It wasn't by accident that this betrayal happened to Jesus. It was God's choice. And it was Judas' choice as well. Not either or, but both and. In his commentary, New Testament scholar Mark Edwards puts it this way, Divine providence neither cancels human freedom nor relieves responsibility for moral choices. This is a good reminder for us. We should never use God's providence as an excuse to engage in any form of evil whatsoever. We are called to pursue holiness day by day. But we also can't fall into thinking that somehow that evil is greater than God's plans. We are to be filled with hope about the future because no matter the present circumstances, God's plan will prevail. So holiness and hopefulness belong together in the Christian life.
Now, we don't know if Judas knew all that would result from Jesus' arrest. Did he really think that when, when he gave up Jesus to the Jewish leadership that he would end up on a Roman cross? I don't think he could have predicted the magnitude of what he was doing. You see, greed issued from a sinful heart knows no limit. And it also knows not the limits of its destruction. But perhaps the worst part of how Judas goes about this is the way he goes about the betrayal. He meets Jesus in the garden with the disciples, and in verse 43 and following, we see that Judas delivers Jesus to the authorities with a sign of devotion. Judas delivers Jesus with a kiss of death. And as it turns out, even back then, political savviness mixed with false devotion to Jesus pays pretty well. Judas received 30 pieces of silver. In our day, that's about $3,000. That was probably the best payday in Judas's life. But what he didn't know was that he was kissing his life away. He couldn't bear what he had done to Jesus. Matthew tells us in his gospel that Judas's life comes to a tragic end. He takes his own life. The interesting thing is that Judas would have heard Jesus say these words in his ministry, for whoever would save his life will lose it. And in seeking to save his life by the pursuit of greed, Judas lost both his physical and his spiritual life. And Judas serves as an example to us today that a life devoted to the acquisition of goods never results in as much good as we think that it will. In fact, a life pursuant of goods in this world only results and evil for us and for others. Now, on some level, Judas's betrayal is not that surprising. John tells us this about Judas in John chapter 12. He was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, when push came to shove, Judas's commitment to greed oozes out of his heart for all to see. Perhaps that's not all that surprising. But what is surprising to us readers of this gospel is what we discover about Peter, the chief apostle, and what he was really devoted to. And in fact, it was a surprise to Peter himself. Let's look now at how Peter's devotion is revealed. While Judas's abandonment of Jesus is planned and profitable, Peter's plan, on the other hand, is unplanned, but just as pitiable. If Judas shows us how we are afflicted with intentions of evil, Peter shows us how self-deception leads to evil acts. Please note, unlike Judas, Peter intends to follow Jesus in this chapter. And after Jesus warns the disciples they will fall away, it is Peter who stands up and says to Jesus in verse 29, even though they all fall away, 
I will not fall away. Peter's commitment is built on good intentions. They may all leave you, Jesus, but not me. When I conducted drug and alcohol therapy recovery groups, I would often review with the patients early warning signs of relapse. And one of these early warning signs was an adamant commitment to sobriety. And the new patients would often scratch their heads and say, how else are you supposed to get sober unless you have an adamant commitment to sobriety? How does that work? And inevitably, one of the more seasoned group members would speak up and say something like this. It's because too often, our momentary enthusiasm starts to replace a solid foundation for recovery. Our momentary enthusiasm, zeal, emotion, starts to replace the solid foundation of recovery. And the same lesson applies to the spiritual life. We mistake enthusiasm, whether we're in worship, whether we have a spiritual experience out in creation, as rootedness in the life of faith. Make no mistake about it. Peter is speaking from the heart to Jesus. But he also speaks with both feet in his mouth. He has no leg to stand on to make such a bold promise to Jesus. Like Judas, Jesus uh, Jesus warns Peter, truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter is so sure of himself. He says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And on some level, coming from the mouth of Peter, this is believable. After all, it was Peter. It wasn't the other disciples who, were the, who was the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, back in Mark chapter 8. Maybe Peter is thinking this, those other guys were clueless about who you were, and I knew who you were, and I got it right. Now you're saying, I'm going to deny that I even know you? Not possible. Our self-assurance oftentimes is really just rooted in self-deception. And in fact, each day, you and I are bombarded with messages that if we're going to get anywhere in this life, you have to be self-assured. Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Rely on yourself. Just be your true self. These are short summaries of the gospel in our time and culture. And this news, this gospel is published everywhere. In movies, in kids' books, psychological advice, music, and it's presented in the most winsome and attractive light. A few weeks ago, my family and I enjoyed a wonderful vacation on a cruise line. And one night, there was a musical about superheroes playing in the main theater. It was really just a knockoff of the Avengers. When we went and the show started, we found it to be very entertaining. The actors were talented and the staging was really excellent. But one of the frequent themes in each of these superhero songs was the idea, you are your own superhero. 
And when it was time for the Captain America-like figure to introduce himself, he was suspended in midair with a harness, flying around with a bubble around him that represented a force field. He could do anything. And we as the audience oohed in awe as he flew above us with impressive lights and music. Until suddenly, the entire production stopped. The cruise director gets on the speaker and says, Ladies and gentlemen, we apologize. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Now, keep in mind, we're on a cruise ship. So my mind starts to think, is this how it ends? (laughs) I better find a violin and start practicing near my God to the out on the deck because, (laughs) oh boy. But thankfully, it was just a show not the boat experiencing difficulties. And as we waited for the show to resume, the poor actor was stuck in midair until crew members levied him down safely to the stage. Clearly being your own superhero has its own limits. It doesn't hold up to the harsh realities and limitations of our lives. It doesn't deal with the problem of sin whatsoever. In our passage, Peter tries to be his own superhero. But unlike that actor, he is going to come crashing down to the stage in this story. He is going to fall not once, not twice, but three times. Notice that the three denials of Jesus come after he falls asleep after he falls asleep three times in the garden when Jesus asks him to pray with him. There are many sin patterns that we fall into because we fail to attend to prayer. The only way to fight off temptation in this life is to be awake to the things of God. And Peter chooses sleep rather than to receive spiritual strength through prayer. You see, prayer is the antidote to the self-reliant life. And Peter fails to avail himself of that antidote. It's his little nap in the garden that will result in his greater fall. You see, when Jesus was tried upstairs in the room by the religious leaders, Peter stays down in the courtyard. He hopes not to be seen, but he hopes to stay warm. And a servant girl approaches him You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And Peter tries to douse the situation with some confusion. In verse 36, he says, I don't speak English. That's my translation. He he says to her, I neither know, know nor understand what you mean. Fake it until you make it didn't end up working for him, though, because he's asked a second time. But before he is asked a second time, the rooster crows. There's a false start. Peter gets a chance to do, to have a do-over, but he doesn't get the record straight. He continues down the crooked path of lies and denial until finally when he's asked the third time, he says, I do not know the man of whom you speak. And to bolster this claim, he swears in the name of God and to himself. Peter was the first disciple to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, and here he can't even utter the name of Jesus. 
Earlier that night, he emphatically declared he would never deny Jesus. Now Peter denies Jesus to a servant girl. Psalm 62, 9 says this. This is a lesson that Peter did not know. Those of low estate are but a breath. He's afraid to confess Jesus to a person on the lowest rung of society's ladder. And then the passage notes that Peter breaks down and weeps. And Luke adds, he weeps bitterly. See, just like Judas, he seeks to save his life and he loses it. But unlike for Judas, his story doesn't come to a tragic end. And make no mistake about it, it has nothing to do with the strength of his faith, his moral character, or anything else he can muster on his own. Peter's eventual restoration and our restoration is only possible because of Jesus' unfailing devotion to the Father and to his disciples. Earlier we noted the impressive devotion of the woman in the earlier part of the chapter, but it is Jesus' devotion that takes center stage in this chapter, from the Passover all the way to his arrest and trial. Let's now look at Jesus' devotion. The woman offered to Jesus the full price of her perfume, but at the Last Supper, what does Jesus offer? His body and his blood, his very life, to bring the forgiveness of sins by his death on the cross. During the, during the supper, the disciples said they would never deny Jesus, but when the story moves to the Garden of Gethsemane, they all fled. Psalm 62.1 said, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. That's exactly the only prayer that Jesus could pray because everyone else had left Him. He was left with God and God alone. The first great de-churching and de-converting movement occurs in the garden before Jesus is crucified. But the faithlessness of the church does not deter Jesus' devotion, Jesus' commitment to reconcile God and humanity once and for all. When Peter denies to know Jesus, the Nazarene down in the courtyard, Jesus will confess the truth on behalf of Peter, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, the one who will come with glory. Peter will fail to speak up, and Jesus will speak for him. When Peter cowers to a servant girl, Jesus does not back down from the truth before the high priest and all the high-up officials. How often does evil flourish in our world, flourish in our hearts, because we fail to speak up when the time calls for it, especially in the presence of high up and important people. But Jesus spoke the truth because he had hidden in his heart the truth of Psalm 62 where it says, those of high estate are a delusion. He could stand up and speak the truth. The only man that could. When the disciples fled and Judas betrayed, and Peter denied, it was Jesus alone who remains faithful to God 
under trial. The end of Psalm 62 declares this. The Lord will render to a man according to his work. Is that good news for Peter? Is that good news for uh, for Judas? Is that good news for any disciple that honestly looks at themselves before God, that God would render to a man or woman according to his work? Not if we are the kind of people that grasp for more than we should and hurt others along the way. Not if we are the kind of people that say one thing and so often do another. Not if we are the kind of people who are given time and time again an opportunity to speak to our neighbor or coworker about Jesus Christ and we fail. The reason God became man in the person of Jesus Christ is because humans could never find their own way back to God. Sin leaves us suspended in the air and exposes our powerlessness in the face of a watching world. The only way that that verse in the Psalms is good news for us is if we are joined by faith to the man Jesus Christ. When our life is found in Him, when He is our cover and our shelter, when He represents us in our place. And that's why we can hold on to that verse with great joy because it echoes what Romans 1 teaches us, what says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There may be times or seasons where we get caught up by immoderate desires, where our spiritual lives go sleepy, when we turn away from God when we least expect it, when we fail to speak up for Jesus when the time presents itself. But thanks be to God that He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ once and for all. He stands for us when we fall. He stands with us when we turn away. God will render to a man according to his work, and that is good news for us because by grace we are in Jesus Christ. He rewards us for the obedience of Jesus Christ. And when that occurs... When we become the people who have turned away from the kingdom kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of light, we become the kind of people that can truly live a life devoted to Jesus. We can press on in faith because we live in the power of Jesus' devotion. And that's exactly what Jesus did for Peter after the resurrection. Peter couldn't even utter the name of Jesus in that courtyard that day. But soon after, he will be able to say this before the court officials, the religious leaders. He'll say this in Acts. Salvation is found in no other name than in the name of Jesus. It's the same Peter. No matter how many times we've fallen, Jesus' death covers all our sins, and he gives us the grace to live lives of devotion to him. His mercy 
is more abundant than our failures. And that is good news that we could hold on to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at your devotion. That as one who is truly God and truly man, you have wedded yourself to us, standing in our place, standing before the Father, offering to him the obedience that we could never do. Lord, forgive us for when we get caught up in the foolishness of believing that we are self-reliant, self-made people. Lord, we live moment by moment by your grace and by your grace alone. Only your grace will overcome all things. And so, Lord, help us this week, wherever you have called us, to stand for you in the grace that you have offered. Thank you that no matter how many times we failed, no matter how many times we've fallen, you remain faithful to us to the very end. Thank you for calling us to yourself. In your name we pray. Amen.